Asabhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Homage to the Blessed, Noble, and Perfectly Enlightened One. Namo Saranto Suche Doye Olahudi Sanmiao Sanputoshi Namo Saranto Suche Doye Olahudi Sanmiao Sanputoshi Ushang Shen Shen Wei Niao Fa Bai Chen Wang Jie Nan Zao Yu Wo Jin Jian Wang De Shou Chi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Good evening, everybody. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma. Uh, it's December 26th, the day after Christmas. We're here at the Berkeley Monastery and we're going to lecture on the Avatamsaka Sutra. And uh, welcome to our Sutra lecture. I've been away for three weeks in Australia and it's good to be back. Uh, turn to the front cover of your Sutra, please. We're going to recite the name of the Sutra in the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Namo for me to not point out that there are five empty seats in the front row, four empty seats in the front row, and 
anybody who would be brave and bold enough to volunteer to fill up those front seats, if that means moving out of your nest, because we're all, it's kind of cold here in California, we're all bundled up tonight. But it would be great if people would mind filling in the front, and that way people don't have to climb over you to get to the front. Now, um, you look at me and I look at you. She, no, she won't do it, I won't do it. That's all right. No problem. Um, we got a little bit of a late start tonight because I've just returned from Australia and uh, <coughs> I'm still... Uh, I was reading the other day about uh, some Aborigines who uh, were traveling across Australia and they were working... They were carrying things and traveling in a truck. And it was important to the guy, the boss in charge of the delivery, that they arrive by a deadline. But the uh, indigenous folks got to 100 miles of their destination and stopped. And they wouldn't go. And they wouldn't go. And the boss was going crazy because deadline, the point of coming... 5,000 miles was to get there on time and they stopped short and they wouldn't go and they wouldn't go. So he he was having trouble communicating so he got a translator and uh, said to them, why won't you go further? We're only 100 miles away. We'll be there in in, in two hours. And they said, no, no. We, we have to stop here so our souls can catch up with us. Because if, even if we arrive and we miss our souls then we haven't come anywhere. So they had the vision that when you travel, the, the right speed for travel is walking. When you walk, your soul walks with you. When you go by an engine that burns fuel, you outwalk, your, you outpace your soul, you out-travel your soul. So I feel very much like I left my soul somewhere over Hawaii, maybe, I don't know. I left my heart in San Francisco, I left my soul in Hawaii without having been to Hawaii. I was just over flying over it. So I'm... Uh, uh, I like the chanting. The chanting kind of calls your soul back. It's nice. Um, <coughs> in any case, I'm a bit behind myself, but we're here tonight <coughs> looking at page 81, 80 and 81 in the sutra. And I want to talk about the text and I want to share with you um, photographs and stories from my time in Australia because I was at a very... Um, unique event, one that happens only five years. Unique means only one, so it's more, it's not really unique, but it's rare. It's a rare event. And I reported to all of you the last time I went to the Parliament, which was in Barcelona, Spain, in Catalan, and that was five years ago. And here we are again. This time the parliament was in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. So I've been down there, down under. And it, one of the interesting things about the visit this time was I was with 24 other people from DRBA. There was a total of 25 folks there, all uh, excited about meeting uh, the world's largest interfaith gathering so I will tell you a bit about that and I've got pictures there's a lot of uh, good photographs that were taken powerful photographs and furthermore 
um, we did we did what I wanted to do, which was um, meet with everyone regularly. We did have our regular group meetings, which was really nice. And as a result, I have everybody else's stories too. Um, so the stories are rich, and plus there were. Um, four or five photographers, all of whom gave me their pictures. So I have pictures from four or five cameras. And while I don't have, um, I don't have all the mm, photographs sorted out down to a nice tight bunch of photos, that's my wish, that's my goal, is to pick out the best of these photographers' eyes and put them together. So that's still coming up. And, so maybe tonight we'll do a rough draft and then some other night we'll uh, <coughs> give you the 100 best or 50 best because the pictures are just amazing. When you have 5,000 people from 220 different religions and 67 countries uh, together, it's, it's quite a gathering. Everybody in harmony, everybody in peace, not at the first not at first. There's a lot of uh, discord about certain issues, but that people arrive at harmony and peace after working it out. That's what matters the most. So I'll report about that. Plus, I've got a new song to share with you that comes from the Sharangama Sutra. So we'll share that later. So let's look at uh, page 80 and 81. Marty, uh, Professor Verhoeven, was kind enough to lecture for me while I was away. And I really appreciate that and the fact that you all came to hear the Dharma and support the Sutra lecture is really satisfying. We are now on the third paragraph in English. If you start with the very top, it's this Bodhisattva if he wants to renounce the home life. That's where we start. The Chinese is uh, line, let's go by lines for the Chinese. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, line seven. We'll do line seven and line eight. Okay, we ready? Shi Pusa Ruo Yu Shia Yu Fofa Jung Chin Xing Jing Jin Bian Nung Shia Chi Zi Wu Yu Yi Ru Lai Jiao Chu Jia Xue Dao Okay, to the right, this Bodhisattva, if he wants to renounce the home life, within the Buddha Dharma, diligently cultivates with vigor, and then can leave the home, his wife and children, and the five desires. He relies upon the thus come one's teaching, leaves the home life and studies the way. Okay. And it says he, but it could be she. Here is one case where the, um, it could be talking about a bhikshu or a bhikshuni, a man or a woman, exactly the same, without difference. We're in the Flower Dormant Sutra, the Ten Grounds chapter, 
and we've come progressively through this description of how a bodhisattva on what's called the first ground cultivates the way and it says this bodhisattva should he or she want to sure jia sure that word um, sure means to let go of relinquish renounce um Jia is a household. It's the standard, mm, pretty much a standard notion of um, a dwelling, usually a man or a woman together with children or without children, but it's not limited to that. It's, it's more than, um, you could think of the house, think of a, uh, leaving home, leaving a house, is the building with the roof, with a bedroom, with kitchen, and the TV, place where you go to to store your stuff, the closets. That's what houses are. Um, but it's not just the building; it's also the relationships. That's part. That's where the house becomes the home, right? So the bodhisattva rule, if he or she wants to show, jia. And the sh here indicates the action that the bodhisattva is taking, and it's a state of mind that you leave first. The um, the whole Buddhist story, the first story in Buddhism, kind of our founding story, begins with a thought, and it's got it's got a name in in the countries where Buddhism has been around a long time they talk about the great renunciation the great renunciation and that although there's actions think of Prince Siddhartha going over the, the wall of the palace how dramatic uh, in the movie it's Keanu Reeves right and he he cuts his hair off and goes out into the woods um it's pretty dramatic to let go of all the stuff that the world says you want. But before that, before there's any action, there's a thought. And it's just a thought in, a, in the mind. It's, it's no bigger than that. It's no weightier than a single thought. But the results of that thought are weighty indeed. Um, to renounce, to shujia, renounce the home life you have to really change you have to turn from everything that the, the, the culture says is good and valuable you have to be countercultural to the extreme you have to be radical it's, it's not normal to um In English, I've seen a bunch of different ways to refer to it. Um, we say, because our, our language, our scriptural language is Chinese, we say, we take it from chu jia, right? Chu means come out from, leave, to, to exit. Jia, home. So we say left home. And we made that, this is our DRBA speak, our Chinglish. We made it 
You're a left home person. Chu Jia Ren is a left home person, someone who has gone out of the house. And that, that works, actually. It's, that's one of our better uh, terms that we kind of coined. Why did we coin that term? It's because in the monasteries of Master Shrinhua, you had the, ex- the experience. People did it. So we had to come up with the word. Shifu's Dharma teachings allowed the first mainstream Westerners to do this thing, to chu jia. So we had to come up with a way to talk about it. We had the, we had the reality, we had to find the name. So left home person is what it came up with. Now, where else was that done? The monks and nuns from who came in the line of Venerable Ajahn Chah. You think right away of Ajahn Sumedho. And now, at Abai Giri, closer to us, Ajahn Amaro, Ajahn Pasano. What do they do? They renounce the householder's life, they say. Renounce the householder's life. Household, instead of family or home. What's the difference? Not much. It's the, I think everybody's clear on the idea, but there's different ways of talking about it. Um, <clears throat> householder is uh, probably a direct translation of the Sanskrit. Um, the notion is that you go from what, what is it? What is what makes a householder? What's the profile of someone who is what you? leave well one would be relationship with property two would be relationship with people family and then three would be kind of a horizon what you are looking for you could say with your spirit where does your spirit live where does your soul if you want to these are uncomfortable words but we'll use them where does your soul live? Where does your spirit live? What's the, what do you expect from that thing inside you? What, what's possible? That's all involved in chu jia or shi jia, letting go of those things. Doing that radical countercultural thing called leaving home. Um, that's all involved here. So in this case, the language is not tricky. It's, it's pretty clear that you are turning from those places of comfort and security and familiarity. So that's what what happens here. For a woman, it's even more radical and uh, countercultural because women traditionally, and it still works by and large, rely upon the husband. Here there's gender in implied right away. Right? Women rely in Chinese they say Kao Shan, you're the mountain that you lean against. That's that's the man. The woman is dependent upon her husband in, in, in a traditional perception. In the West we are working with those definitions of role. Women are much more uh, independent and can be more independent, not when I say in the West, I should say in the 21st century, because in Japan, that is certainly the case. Redefinition of roles are taking place. But by and large, 
to have a woman um, <clears throat> say, I don't need any man, don't need my dad, don't need my husband, don't need my son, don't need my uncle, don't need a protector, I'm independent. That, that's rare. That's, that's not the ordinary way to do it. So for a, a woman needs someone, usually a male, to be her protector in traditional society. A woman without a protector was prey. She was available to be attacked or consumed or raped or killed. That's the way it has been historically as long as there have been humans. So here we have a situation where a woman says, I don't need that. I am renouncing the householder's life. For a man alone in the world, mostly he'll get along one way or the other. Some men go to big institutions like the army, the military, a hospital where they depend upon the walls and the institution. Others go to mm, prisons, <coughs> jails. <clears throat> they don't function independently outside. They like to join larger units. But the ideal here is one person outside of the comfort zone of house relationships, property, all the stuff that says you need to be secure. Okay, For a man to say, no, I am relying upon something else. I'm taking refuge in something else is one statement. For a woman to say, I don't need even a man, I'm relying upon something else. Very profound courage and strength of renunciation. Not easy to do, but that's traditionally how it's been. Okay, so we said definition of householder, relationship with stuff, walls and a roof. You know where the refrigerator is. You know where the toilet is. You know where your closet is, where your clothes are. You know where your vehicle is in case you need to travel. That's all comfort. That's all security, safety, normalcy. Tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, the next morning, the next night, five years from now, ten years from now. You know where your roof is. When it rains, you don't get wet. You know where tomorrow's meal is going to come. It's going to come from that kitchen. Okay, That's all standard, standard way to do it. Now, relationships, that's material, right? Material comfort and security. Relationships. You know where mom is. You know how she's doing because you've been in, you called her recently. Probably we're now in the Christmas holidays. We may have seen mom and dad. Um, maybe not. Maybe she's passed away. But we definitely remember all of the uh, Christmases past, all the holidays past with mom. Those relationships are things that we depend on, work with every day, especially if we're younger. If we're the parent, we think about the kids. Where are they? How are they doing? This is part of being in the household. It's normal. This is the way things are done. It's part of our species. Right? Um, then there's that third one. There's the spiritual. Where do we rely now, here it gets really subtle. Um, do you define yourself as a religious person? I had some very, uh, I had some friends who were very hip, very uh, much in the world, participating in all 
levels of culture who went to Mass every single day. Any day that they didn't stand there and say, Body of Christ, Blood of Christ, was the day wasn't complete. That's a kind of reliance. That's a kind of spiritual refuge. Um, I know left home. Uh, I know people who are not left home, who are lay people, who recite Guanyin Bodhisattva's Great Compassion Mantra for two and a half hours a day, every single day, and they're not. They still have their hair and all their things, but they completely take refuge in the Spirit. Intense relationship with the Spirit. So there's many ways of answering where is your spirit in relationship to the household. So we're defining householder as things, relationships, and spirit. It's kind of three worlds where we live. Now, I want to um, give you a standard definition of leaving home. Okay? The uh, standard definition of leaving home is you leave three homes, they say. The first is you leave the fanaojia. You leave, let's see, the first is shi, let's see, worldly home. Fanaojia, li sanjiejia, li now that I've said I've got them I think I missed one okay let me see if I can do it I'll have to correct myself next week if I got it wrong the first is okay let me see if I can get it right the first is you leave the you leave the home of afflictions okay I'm just pulling this out of my memories you leave the home of afflictions now, funny to think of afflictions as a home, but it's true. If you look at where our minds live, often you could say our minds live in a combination of emotion and opinion. Okay? We're always moving from happiness to happiness's end, from anger to no more anger from fear, one kind of fear or another, to fearlessness. We're always involved in one emotional state or another. It's just part of having a body. Emotions are embodied. We feel those fears and angers in our body. And we're, we live in opinions. Now, if you think of the skandhas, we have the second skanda of, of feelings, which is also emotions and sensations. Then you go from thinking to, some, to the fourth, the activity skanda. That's where our, our opinions are. We're going from one deeply felt mm, political view to another. We're going from one love to a hate. Oh, I love baseball. Oh, I love cycling. Oh, I love this brand of beer. Right? I love more hot sauce on my pho. Without it, it's not real pho. It has to have that flavor. You know, I love this. And then that can change. We grow up, ooh, I hate Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts, yick, can't stand them. Most kids hate Brussels sprouts. But if you get older, Brussels sprouts taste pretty good. So we go from loving coffee to hating coffee because it really messes up our system. 
So we go from these deeply held opinions, right, to the other. This is fanaja. What are fanao? Fanao are afflictions, greed, anger, and stupidity, pride, doubt. Those are the basics, right? So more or less, we live in this world of afflictions. When you leave home, you chu fanao jia. You leave the home of afflictions. Okay? What else do you leave? You leave the shi, xu, jia, the ordinary meaning, the common description that we're talking about. The building. You go out from your condo, apartment, room, house, dormitory. <coughs> you leave the shi, xu, jia, the worldly house, uh, household. And the third is the power one. You chu san jie jia. You leave the home of the three realms. Desire, form, and formless. In other words, you become a Buddha. You put an end to the body's place where you live. So the three realms. You leave the, I think I got the order wrong. Apologies to you. I think it's first shi xu jia is the first one you leave. You leave the worldly home. That's the, the one we've been describing with material relationships and spirit. Then you leave the fan nao jia, the, realm of, the household of afflictions. Then you leave the san jie jia, the home of the three realms. So that is thorough, complete leaving home. That's the complete leaving home. Okay? When you leave the worldly home, the home of afflictions, and the home of the three realms. Okay, let's combine those. So, if our description of the house is material, well, that would be the shi shi jia. You can do without stuff. Afflictions, afflictions are often tied up with relationships. Everything would be fine until she got in my face about that and just pissed me off. Right? So that's affliction based on relationships. That's the second one. And then... The world of the spirit is clearly you leave the three realms, the home of the three realms. So total, complete leaving home is three realms after afflictions, after worldly home. Okay. So that's a classical description of what it means to really leave the home life. Now, that's, the, that's how it works in theory. What does it say here? The Bodhisattva, if he or she wants to renounce the home life, let that go. Within the Buddha Dharma, that's key, right? Yu Fo Fa Zhong, meaning doing what the Buddha did. Our story, our founding religious story, is all about that renunciation. It's called the Great Renunciation. The prince going out in the woods, six years, six Christmases, six New Year's, six birthdays passed out there beyond the security of the house. Nothing to rely upon except the Buddha Dharma. And what's scarier is he didn't have a Buddha in front of him. Right? Prince Siddhartha was navigating without a GPS. He was going on fire in his stomach that said getting old beside my spouse in the palace is not all there is. There's got to be more. That's not what I've seen my dad get old. He's an old king. 
He's got his armies around him and he can't go to war anymore because he's peaceful king. What are the armies used for? He can't get out with his battle elephants. What are they for? He's got these jewels. He's seen them every day of his life. He's bored with his jewels. Right? He's got his crown on his head. It's heavy on his head. I don't want to be my dad. I don't want to be a peaceful king and die in my bed. That's not enough, said the prince. His belly was on fire for something more. Right? Not enough. He had reached... He was heading to the peak of the world. He didn't want it anymore. So that's our founding story. He said, there's got to be more. I don't want to just die and have my teeth fall out in the king's throne. What's the point of that? You know, he said. So he had only the Buddha Dharma. He didn't even have a teacher in front of him. He didn't have Shrufu giving him the role, showing the way. Right? Tough. That, that's, that's scary to say I'm going where nobody's gone. No compass taking me out to where I want to go. He just had that desire to not only die as his fuel, as his motivation. So, within the Buddha Dharma, what he left behind was what we have as left-home people, is his model, his instructions, his methods. And what does he do? Qin Xiu Jing Jin. Works hard. That just means works hard. Qin, energetically, Xiu cultivates Jing Jin, Virya, the path of effort. We say vigor. It's the paramita number four, right? The paramita of vigor. But it, it just means mm, you, you put your muscles to use. You put your shoulder to it. You strain, you push. Get up again tomorrow morning. Get up again tomorrow morning and sit there. It's cold here in Northern California. Wow. It was hot down there in Australia. It's summer there. Come back and feel the chill. And uh, this looks like a rainy winter so far. Pretty good. If we're, we're ahead of... We were in a four-year drought in California. And to have the rain and the cold is really a good thing. Um, if it doesn't get below freezing for enough nights next year, the tree crops don't bloom. They don't set. We need the cold for the tree crops to to chill. That's how they come out the next year. So that Ukiah Valley is below ze- below 32, below freezing, is really the best thing that can happen for the grapes, for the walnuts, for the olives, for the pears, for what used to be the prime crop of the peaches and the apples. So <clears throat> that's vigor. Getting up in the cold, sitting again. Getting up in the hot of July here in California, sitting again. Vigor doesn't always mean like, you know, hitting it until it breaks. Vigor can often mean one more time. Do it again. It's the repetition that makes it the cultivation. It's not so much that you punch it and see if it falls down and break your hand in the process. It means that you do it again. One other day. The earth has gone around the sun you know, one more time. We've gone around our axis one more time, 24 hours. And then we go around the sun, 365. And that's vigor. One more time. Shurfu used to say, uh, don't cultivate for tomorrow. Don't cultivate for next year. Don't cultivate for 10 years. He said, Bodhisattva, 
makes vows that never end. Cultivate for lifetimes. Look ahead. Use a long vision. That's the way we should cultivate. So, he cultivates with vigor. Then, he, she can leave the home life, renounce the householder's comforts. His qi and zi. This is not qi zi. Qi zi would be Mandarin, right? This is qi zi. Wife and offspring. Spouse and offspring. Qi is, although it's defined as wife, there's the woman radical there, but it means spouse. So it could be husband. The bottom half of that character is the female radical. The woman. The top part is the phonetic. So it's qi. So the, the, the second character there is zi, is, is a baby with a big head and his arms open. Right? Something that any mom would look at and just want to give him a hug because here's the baby. Like that. Big head. That's a, that's a pictogram of a child. So, after relying upon the Dharma, within the Dharma, being vigorous, then he, she is able to see through the ties of the family and the children and the spouse and the Wu Yu. Okay, here's a list. This is a really good list. Um, this one comes up all the time. So we've got, when we run into the lists, the, the two of this, the three of this, the four of this, the five of this, it's important to to name them so that we who are looking into sutras kind of slowly gather that list. I was just working with the three kinds of leaving home and I first time I tried it I goofed it. I put it out of order. Um, Shurfu really valued these lists in order. And if I messed them up, ooh, he would scold me. They, who do you think you are messing with the ancient's wisdom? You are so careless. So to to la la you know, so messy, heedless about the way things should be done. Though, you know, I would say, well, sure, but same number, it's just out of order. <clears throat> you have no respect for tradition. You, this is what he would call destroying the patriarchs and, and overthrowing the teachers. So these lists are really related to each other in order. There's a, there's a chi, there's a sequence. So, the five desires are one of those basic lists that come in order for us to look at. And they are what? The five objects of desire. Cai, shai, ming, shi, shui. This is a good list to know. Cai, wealth. Valuable things. Wealth. You can think of money, but... These days, money is not what it used to be. Dollars are still dollars, but it's now electronic. Money has moved to a to to electronic wire transfers of cash, right? Or it's a plastic card that represents cash. It's not so much the the actual mm, bills. I should say that having been to Australia. American dollars, we haven't paid much attention to our money. 
First of all, all our money is the same size. A one and a hundred can't tell by touch. Where's that at? Right? It's like if you're not a sighted person, if you don't see well, how do you know by touch how much money you got? Other countries have duh, figured that out. In Australia, the fives, the tens, the twenties, the fifties, and the hundreds are all different sizes. They're all different sizes. How easy is that to allow the percentage of our population who don't see to know how much money they have? Tellers in banks can count the money with their eyes closed. They know what they've got by touch. That's interesting, isn't it? Okay, also their money is very colorful. Really colorful. So the 50s are yellow. The 100s are green. The 20s are red. The 10s are blue and the 5s are... I forget what color the 5s are. It's very nice, pretty money. And as I was changing money at the airport, the, the guy was very interested in... He asked me where Berkeley was. Now, Berkeley. I was in California. Oh, California. Oh. It's neat to have somebody who didn't know where Berkeley was. And so I'm changing money. And what I said, I really like their money. He says, yeah, watch. And he picks up a 10 and he goes, crumple, 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 crumple. Crumples it into a ball, lets it fall, and it goes, bonk. The money can't be destroyed. Right? It's elastic. Somehow they've got it so it's crumple proof. He crumpled it up into a little ball like a Kleenex and it went, and all the wrinkles went away. So it's woven, so it's elastic money. Furthermore, Australian money has got a little transparent ear in it. There's something kind of like a kidney bean in every dollar bill that's see-through. You can hold it up. It's very hard to forge. It's really hard to forge that see-through plastic. You, and in the plastic, you can put lots of hologram, hologrammatic hologram codes. So forgers have a very hard time with Australian money because you've got to have this special little plastic kind of the size of your maybe this, your index finger nail, right? That's see-through. Hold it up, the sun comes right through it. Very neat money. It's very cool. So that's, that's the wealth. And so the first of the desires is tight money, wealth. And it doesn't have to be money. It can be credit cards. It can be traveler's checks. I'm carrying traveler's checks. And boy, it's so funny. When you pull out traveler's checks, so many people don't know what to do with them. Traveler's checks are rarer and rarer. Remember used to be, remember when I was a kid, if you traveled, you went to American Express, got traveler's checks because they were safe. If they were stolen or lost and you had the receipt, you could get it back. How many, have, how many people have used traveler's checks? Use them. Okay, so you, they're still out there. I'm carrying them. I, I don't want to give them to anybody because there's so much trouble now. Nobody knows what to do with traveler's checks. So, <coughs> traveler's checks. Um, that's wealth. It could be pearls, diamonds, gold. Could also be the first one. Sai. Could be art. Could be statues. Could be paintings. Could be mm, ancient, valuable instruments. Oh, let me recommend if anybody wants to, if you're a diehard aficionado of 
handmade instruments like I am in the Southwest Airlines terminal at the Oakland airport. They have put up one of those displays. You know, when you're going down the, the concourse heading for the gate, there's a beautiful, beautiful display of guitars, handmade guitars, luthiers, put up by friends of mine. I was coming back yesterday from, uh, from Australia, actually from L.A., because we flew into L.A. from Brisbane, and stopped, just stopped, had to go look, because here were a dozen beautiful handmade guitars in one of these plexiglass displays with the descriptions showing how they're made. Very, very, very beautiful. And Kathy Wingert's guitar was there and Irvin Samaji's guitar was there and Howard Klepper's guitar was there. There were some beautiful guitars. Kathy's guitar, I don't know if that's one that has been in the monastery, but I suspect it is. Her guitars are selling for $12,000 now. Uh, I think base price is ten. And these were some of her very, this is one of her best guitars. So this could also be called Tsai wealth. Whatever you consider to be valuable or what the world considers valuable, that is Tsai, it's a desire. We see those valuable things and we want them. Because why? They're valuable. They're really special. If you have been in the Louvre, in Paris, and gone to see the crown jewels, there's, there are galleries in the Louvre in Paris where French crown jewels are on display. And they are stunning. You understand why people get greedy about jewels and gold. Because you look at them and you realize, wow, this is valuable. You don't have to be told. It's just valuable. My goodness. Um, I remember in Montserrat, in Barcelona, um, the Montserrat is a Benedictine monastery, right? It's on Tooth Mountain, Montserrat, the serrated mountain. It's like toothed comb, combs, teeth of a comb. And they have a museum <coughs> right beside the monastery, down below, that's very um, small, but incredibly... Uh, worth the visit. And I'm, I am not somebody, notice, monks don't have any jewelry, right? Don't have. I have some beads, but they're, you know, mostly stones or, or like tree seeds or something. But in the Benedictine monastery where the kings of Spain and the queens have rebuilt it over and over again after like Napoleon burns it down, the kings open their treasuries and rebuild the monastery, they have gathered lots of valuables. And in the museum under Montserrat, you can see the jewels that the popes and the abbots and the kings and queens have donated to the monastery. They're all on display behind like bulletproof glass with infinite layers of security and alarms. Incredibly beautiful. Maybe because it's small. Maybe because you just go in the door and there it is. It's so accessible. Something about the, the jewels in Montserrat. Uh, maybe it's because I'm a monk and I was associating with the monks who have like owned these things over the years. But suddenly I understood treasures. 
right? Jewels, the way I hadn't before. Just looking at these incredible crosses encrusted with pearls and rubies and diamonds and emeralds and sapphires and gold and silver. Just all there, right? Just, you know, in front of you, kind of like right here. Instead of, you know, the wooden fish, it's this scepter made of gold with diamonds encrusted on it. The symbol of power for the religion. All for the greater glory of Christ and for the Pope who it was made for. You know, it's like there's humanity right there. There are people who own this stuff. And it's very compelling to see why people steal crown jewels. It's valuable stuff. It's very easy to see why greed would rise as you look at this pearl-encrusted sword made at no sparing no expense for the abbot of Montserrat Monastery who'd been sent by the Pope to, you know, etc., etc. So, wowee, when you go to see these close up, in America, we don't have kings, right? We never had royalty. So we don't have crown jewels. We have Wall Street instead, right? We have every man's wealth, Cadillacs. We name our cigarettes after royalty, right? Winston, Salem, uh, Viceroy. You know. So then the occasional camel, but never mind it. Lucky strikes. So anyway, to see real Thai, you can understand why it's valuable. Oh my. So that's Thai. The first desire, wealth. Second one, what is something that people desire. Well, opposite sex. Sexuality, right? Gender. It's built right into our survival genes. So the second one is, the, trans the usual translation is sex. But what it means is the fundamental desire for succession, for, this, for the species to survive. The survival desire. Wealth, when you boil it down from that point of view, is probably just means embodiment. Right? Why, why do we want beautiful stuff? Not because just to have it, because if you have it, it's a hassle. Why are those jewels at Montserrat behind glass embedded with alarm wires and with layers of locks every night and the red, the red lasers going out, just like the caper movies, right? You know, where you have to the burglars have to beat the red lasers, right? It's because that's the finest expression of this thing that keeps us alive. Wealth is stuff that we depend upon. It's a primal desire. If you don't believe it, go homeless. Homeless meaning, you know, homeless people in the street, not homeless monks. What's it like to have nothing? Um, I read a very interesting uh, essay <coughs> saying from homeless advocates. They say the number one, the number one thing when you're homeless, when you're really out there, the number one thing that if you don't have this, nothing else matters is heat. The hardest thing to, to deal with is continued cold. Cold another night. Right? That if you don't have a sleeping bag, if you don't have a shelter for the wind, everything else seems secondary. You can do without food. You can do without water for a while. Water's hard. You've got a couple of days. 
but if you don't have enough heat, then your body just shuts down on you. So there's a core temperature that you have to maintain. So you keep adding levels of abstraction and you get to the crown jewels, right? But it's all wealth, it's high. That first one, I think, means sustenance of this body. Sexuality is continuation of the line. That's the primal urge to survive as a species or as a clan, as a name, as a family. How powerful. Right? Moms want their kids to have kids so that the species survives. That's the next level of abstraction. Tsai, shy. Okay, the third one in line seems funny um, that it would be so powerful, but it is. It's called Ming in Chinese. And the translation is fame. But it's more than just fame. Tsai, shy, Ming. Right? What is fame? Fame, you could say, is also, change one letter, face. Fame and face are pretty much the same thing. Well, what is face? Why is face important? It's, you could also say, respect. What happens if you diss somebody? Right? If you, when you get into cultures where they're called shame and honor cultures. If you study anthropology, sociology, you get pretty quickly into cultures that are based on shame and honor. Mediterranean cultures on both sides. Arabic, North African, around the northern Mediterranean. Right? That's where if you, inj- if you call somebody a name, you will fight. You will duel, right? What you looking at me like that for? You know, uh, one wrong look. If you diss somebody in certain parts of shame and cultures where shame and, and honor are important, you're gonna have to follow it up with violence. One look. That's all it takes in certain places, certain times. What you looking at me for, right? So, how powerful? a desire is it to have respect and honor. The absence of that will lead to physical violence. So fame is more than just fame. I want to be famous. I want to be known to everybody. It's that need for respect of something abstract, your honor, your family name. Mm, Where does the abstract become physical? Where does it materialize? Very instant. You could trace that. It's powerful. Powerful. Another way to think of of that third desire, fame, the desire for fame, is friends. You want to be related. You want to be popular. Okay? You want to be popular. The question... Now, how many, you know, there's, there's a, let me, I'm so much to say, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, if you think of the stage of childhood development where the most important thing are your friends, it happens somewhere around 10 years old, 
could be earlier, could be a little later. But most important is, do you like me? Am I accepted? That's a genuine stage. Anybody who's raised kids knows. Anybody who's taught kids knows that there is an age. Sixth grade is pretty much when it's at its peak. When more important than anything is to be liked, to be socialized, to be accepted by your peers. There's a time when you grow sideways. And before that, it's, I'm, I do what mom and dad says. Whatever mom and dad. Basically, I'm here. I'm little brother, bigger brother, little sister, big sister, child of my parents. But there is a time when suddenly you realize that there are peers and you better be liked by those peers. Or your personality gets pressure. You change in that way. I'm not popular. I'm in the out group. That's where a lot of music comes. I'm in with the in crowd. I go where the in crowd goes. When I was growing up, I knew exactly the songs that praised being popular. Right? That's all part of the Ming fame. Being popular. If you are not, you start to shape your personality. Okay? Very powerful. Very, very powerful. To be liked. Now, who can suffer death of the ego? Who can bear to be absolutely nameless, faceless, forgotten? Right? That's a left home person. What's it like to go to a monastery where you know that the person who used to be so and so with this social security number, with this bank account, with these degrees, with these possessions, with this accomplishment, is forgotten by the world, is now faceless, nameless, a new name, right? A religious name is behind those walls and may never come out. How interesting, huh? To be able to leave that behind. Not easy. There must be something powerful replacing that basic fundamental urge. The wish to take on a new name, a new identity. How powerful. Look at what the prince did, right? The prince went out from any social recognition and that was going to be big if he was king all of India would know his name his dynasty carrying on from dad well he said no that's okay but that's all related to this body and I've seen that this body is not going to last okay so here's wisdom starts to push against the boundaries of the normal and the accepted and the acculturated and the normative right Something, that vision of the Buddha, the princes, was very strong to allow him to say, no, I don't care if nobody knows my name. I don't want to, when I'm dead, who's going to remember? Who remembers the name on the tombstones after these famous people go to the coffin, go to the grave? Who remembers? Right? So very powerful awarenesses struggling against the boundaries of the conventional, the normal, the safe, the comfortable. 
How powerful it is. Okay, what do we got? Three. Cai, Shai, Ming. Okay? Wealth, sex, or survival of the species. Fame, or recognition, or respect. The fourth one is Shi, food. Ah, my belly trembles as I think about the power of this fourth desire. Who would think that food would be a desire on a par with wealth and sex? Wealth is survival of this body. Sex is survival of the species. Powerful. Third one is respect, name, recognition of your ego, of this entity that is you. Food, how could food be that powerful? It's really powerful. Because it's, you could say that the fourth one is health also. If it wasn't powerful, how could left home people, our, our, our person who's gone forth in the householder's life, how could they be content to eat food nobody else wants and only a little of it right what's it like to no longer be able any time of the day or night to go to the fridge and get what you want how powerful is that urge I eat what I want when I want to and if it's not there I'll go out and buy it because why I want to eat what I want to eat drink what I want to drink when I want to as a left home person you let that one go. What do you eat? What was put in my bowl this morning? Or in my case, our case here, whatever comes in the door at noon. Actually, the way we've set it up at the Berkeley Monastery is not too far from the Buddha's monastic ideal, which is you go out for alms. What's it like here? What I eat tomorrow depends on what some donor who I don't know who it is brings in the door tomorrow. Although I don't go out with my bowl to, to pick it up, it's very much the same. We've created a situation where kind-hearted, generous donors decide what I'm going to eat and they bring it in. If I don't like that, guess what? Tough. Hungry. There's always palmian, but you can die on palmian. You know, you eat it every day. So, Basically, I don't know from day to day what I'm going to eat, which is a very wonderful way to live. It puts you right at two edges. One is gratitude and survival. Suppose somebody doesn't bring food tomorrow. Well, on one hand, I won't have something to offer to the Buddhas. But... I'll depend on whatever we got stashed. And we do, actually. The monastery has lots of, you know, stashed food, dry food, canned food, things like that. We have frozen food a little bit. But in reality, we've got it down now where the fridge is mostly empty, especially on Sunday, the end of the week, because people take care of the leftovers. But it's, think about that. How comfortable is it to know that in the kitchen, you can go make whatever you want, anytime. If you don't have it, go to a restaurant. Monks don't do that. Nuns don't do that. We don't know from day to day what there's going to be, what I'm going to go into my mouth. 
And so what do you give up? You give up choice. You give up flavor, by and large. Now, that's certainly within boundaries because the kind lay people know pretty much what we eat and we're already in some pretty strict descriptions and limitations like no meat, no fish, no dairy, no eggs, no poultry, no pungent plants, and things that don't have MSG. I'm a vegan, so no dairy. Things within those narrow confines, people pretty much know um, what, what monks and nuns eat. But that's a very interesting way to go right up against the face of desire. And I've told you stories about my attempts to, to leave home. I, my dad was a gourmet cook. We had mm, a wine cellar in my house because um, my dad really was a, he was a diabetic and a lot of things he couldn't eat. He couldn't eat sweets at all. But among flavors, he really liked flavors. So he knew how to cook in 10 different kinds of cuisines and kept us eating. My mom also was a gourmet cook. and So I grew up having, you know, experienced the best French food, the best Mexican food, the best Canadian food, although people would say there is no French-Canadian cuisine. I don't know about that. It's, you know, lots of patates frites and... And so, anyway, we, I grew up tasting all kinds of different, different flavors. When you become a monk, it's mostly rice and broken vegetables. I spent the first two years of my left home life going out to the dumpsters of San Francisco, behind Safeway, behind IGA, behind Ralph's, behind Andronico's, picking the tossed out food from the dumpsters because we waste a lot in America. Shavu never used money on food. So whatever we brought back from the dumpsters is what we ate. And that's because the Sangha was just getting underway in the West. There, aren't, there weren't many of us. And lay people bringing food to Gold Mountain didn't exist at that point. It was too new. The Sangha was brand new. So we went out, we took offerings from the dumpsters of San Francisco's grocery stores for years and did very well, flourished, right? Just cut out the brown spots. As soon as there are brown spots, they can't sell it. You gotta get it off the shelves and bring out the new. So we would pick out the groceries, cut out the brown spots, and steam it up and it was delicious. Super good. Better produce in the dumpsters of San Francisco than the front shelves of the grocery stores in the Midwest, especially in the winter. Why? The produce, the vegetables in the grocery stores in Ohio in the winter come by trucks from California or Mexico or Florida. And winter, if you want broccoli in the winter in, Cal in Ohio, it comes in a styrofoam tray with plastic wrap and it's a couple like stringy, slightly brown broccoli stalks. California broccoli, right? It was in the ground last week and it trucked its way to Ohio. Seriously, it's cold in Ohio. Snow on the ground. You can't grow it. So if you get broccoli out of the dumpsters in San Francisco, I'm not recommending it because now it's probably regulated. But if you get broccoli out of the dumpsters in San Francisco that's been dumped there, it was in the ground three days ago. It's got slightly brown so they can't sell it. So we did really well. Really, really well. Eating that way. 
So all the same, a left home person looks right at the desire for food. And it often comes down to choice. What do you want today? What, what does your palate tell you you want today? Left home people can't choose that. So that's a very interesting desire. Desire for flavor. Very strong. The last one is shui. So we've had wealth and survival, wealth, sex, fame, right? Respect, that is, for the ego. Wealth, sex, fame, food, which is flavor for the body. And the last one is sleep, literally. Shui, sleep. How could desire for sleep become so powerful that it's on a par with wealth and sex and fame and food? It's not only sleep. It's physical comfort. <coughs> that last desire has to do with everything for the five senses. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, particularly the last one. Dangran. Of course, it's sleep too. It's that you want to sleep. And if you don't get enough sleep, you things are hard. If you're sleep deprived, nothing feels quite clear and focused. You walk around in a haze a lot if you're sleep deprived. Now the purpose is not to be sleep deprived. The purpose is to recognize how much of my life is spent making the body really comfortable. How much of my effort goes into pleasing my body a lot. Right? Comfort. Think of um, KQED um, talks about uh, your sleep comfort number. What is it? There's a, uh, there's a bed store in Berkeley that advertises big on our public radio station. What's it called? Your sleep... Your, you have to get your sleep comfort number, which is just exactly what you want, and it can be different than the person you're sharing that bed with, your spouse. What is it? You, know, you all listen to KQED? Okay. How come my ears hear these ads? It's funny. It's that... There's a bed store in Berkeley that sells a kind of a mattress that you dial in your sleep preference, right? So your mattress can be hard or soft, depending on how you like it. And it's got two on each side, so you can have a different sleep preference. I like preference number three. That's my preference. Ego wants that. So that is really comfortable sleep. You get it just as hard or as soft as you want. I think they use the word firm, firm or yielding. So, yeah, how neat to be able to make your sleep preference just the way you like it. Um, that's marketing. That's the marketplace. Wants to please our ego, so we'll buy the product. So the desire for sleep can be literally real comfortable sleep. But it can also mean just things that please the body. You can't be too cold. You can't be too hot. Or what? Affliction. The mind starts to rebel and you've got to move until you satisfy that desire for comfort. So, five desires. Wealth, sex, fame, food, sleep. Five desires. Now, I've been talking about this already for 30 minutes and you could talk about it for weeks and weeks and weeks because when you look into this, you realize that a lot of my lifetime is spent 
centered around those five things. Working with some combination of wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. Why do we get a job? Satisfy the five desires. Why do we fight with people? Because those five desires got frustrated. Why do our relationships break up? Often it's over money, sex, fame, food, sleep. Why do we make friends? We make friends. Why do we join our internet chat groups? Because of pursuit of the five desires in some combination. It's really, really powerful. And if you want to get involved with the power of the five desires to, to drive your life, leave home for a while. If you don't want to do that, if you want to keep your hair, take the eight precepts. Because the eight precepts is a method where ordinary folks can experience a left-home person's lifetime lifestyle without shaving your head for a day, for three days, for a week. We transmit the Eightfold Precepts and the precepts are aimed directly at shaking up our dependence on wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. Um, for example, in the Eight Precepts, you take one that says, I will not eat at improper times. For a left-home person, that means not afternoon. So if you take the eight precepts, you stop eating at noon. It means you have breakfast and lunch. And something as simple, i.e., I didn't, it's an omission, right? It means no food, no dinner, basically no dinner. Something as simple as that can dominate your thinking. It's amazing and humbling to realize that all you have to do is say, no, nothing afternoon today, because I took the eightfold precepts. Suddenly, like, all you could think about is no dinner. No dinner. I better eat a little more at lunch today. Right? I better go back for that third helping. And when you do, you overeat, and then the next three hours is like, oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. You know, because your, your body is stuffed and your mind is all cloudy and fuzzy. You realize, man, I'm being whipped around by what? The desire for two things, food and sleep. Boy, oh boy just change a little bit of our comfort range and you discover, I am not free. I'm being whipped around by my habits, by my desires. They're really, really powerful. Here's another test. Try, excuse me, try uh, stepping away from the engine of manipulated desire that is advertising. Right? Try standing against the upgrade stream with your software. Imagine using software that was hot in 2002. Imagine using seven-year-old software on your computer. What a burden to think, boy, I'm back to Word 5.1. Right? I'm not. My files all end with DOC instead of DOCX. Oh boy, how you have to work when your software is downdated, downgraded. Oh boy. So that's a simple thing. But advertising tells us we need new, we need more, we need better, we need hip, we need the hot one. Advertising depends on it, obviously, so that the revenue stream is keep, 
keeps flowing. So powerful, powerful forces called five desires. Someone, what does he do? It says, Qin xiu jing jin bian neng she jia qi zi wu yu. Able to let go of five desires. Oh boy, how strong. Don't believe it? Push against it for 24 hours. And you'll see that this is a tide. Swim against the tide? Not easy. Tides are strong. right? The tide of desire, the tide of the marketplace, very, very powerful. Molding our lives. So to be able to say, nope, I see something beneath that tide that is pulling me more strongly. Which is, as Chief Oren Lyons, the Iroquois, said in in, uh, Melbourne last week, two weeks ago, he said that we are the species that has foreknowledge of our death. Now, we've all heard that every now and then, but coming out of the the Onondaga chief's mouth, it was especially powerful. We are the species that has foreknowledge of our death. And he said, when people ask me, what are people? What are people supposed to be? He said, people are supposed to show gratitude. People are supposed to thank the world that gives us life. So that's, that's right from the, the chief's mouth, Chief Warren Lyons, the faith keeper of the Iroquois. He spoke in Barcelona. And that's a deeper level of the desires. Instead of saying, I want wealth, sex, fame, food, sleep, if we say, you know, I have enough. Furthermore, I'm grateful. I want to share the blessings. And thank you. I acknowledge how much the whole world is supporting my existence directly, not indirectly. It's not abstract. It's real. My next breath supports my existence. Thank you. Right? That's powerful magic. Powerful stuff. That's what people are supposed to do, according to the Anandaga chief. So I've gone way over my time, and um, I haven't even finished. Yi ru lai jiao, depending on the teachings of the thus come one, chu jia xue dao, leaves the home life to study the Tao, to study the path. I'm going to come back next week on the same paragraph because there's a lot more. What am I talking about? we have only talked about what are called the external five desires. The rough course five desires. Wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. That's our list. Took a long time to even get to the end of them, right? Powerful list. Five desires. They are wealth or property that substantiates our body. Sex or the relationships that keep us alive as a species fame or respect or name or popularity, will you be my friend? Wealth, sex, fame, food, which is this habit of desire, and then comfort for the body, sleep. Wealth, sex, fame, food, sleep. Five desires. Powerful. 
I didn't get to the internal, subtle five desires, which are form, sound, cai, si, si, shou, xiang, xing, shi, si, sheng, xiang, wei, chu. That's it. Form, sound, smell, taste, touch. Those desires carry cultivators into desire. Right? Suppose you left a home life, you're not pursuing wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep, but you're a meditator and you're looking for states of meditation. I want to experience emptiness. Right? Subtle. Desire for sound. Desire for taste. Desire for contact powerful, subtle desires that can carry us right there. Samadhi. You can wish for samadhi and get stuck on a desire. So, what is the principle? Last thing I want to say. What's wrong with the five desires? Is it that Buddhists are supposed to be malcontents? Buddhists are supposed to be mm, completely anti-social? No. Bodhisattvas live right in the world. But they don't move out of fullness pursuing five desires. The problem with desire is can't be satisfied. Desires are like a fire. They keep burning. They consume. They consume. They consume. When does the fire go out? When you stop feeding it fuel. When does desire end? When you say, "Mm, everything I pursued that I grabbed turned around and bit me. Once I got it, I didn't want it anymore. It didn't satisfy me. The problem with desire is you never get the last one. You never get the payoff when you pursue desire because desire itself consumes. Desire itself is the issue, not the stuff. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with wealth or sex or fame or food or sleep. We depend on those things to survive. The problem is desire burns that stuff up until you die. The thing about wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep is it's all body-centered. All those things feed the body. Desire itself burns the spirit, the soul, the Buddha nature that goes after that stuff for the body. If you can catch it, you realize no desire, no object of desire, once you get it, is ever going to satisfy. There's never the last one. And so if you can catch desire, that burning feeling that says, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. If you can catch that saying, I want, and say, what if instead of saying, that's the thing, that's the thing, that's the the new one, the marketplace keeps shifting the thing, right? Oh, I thought I wanted 5.0, now 6.0, right? If you can catch that and you say, how about if I sit still and turn that back and meditate? Suddenly, there's this fullness that arises, this sense of contentment with fewness of desires. There's incredible contentment that happens when you finally turn it and say, 
No, I need a bit of property. I need relationships. I need respect. I need food. I need sleep. But just enough. Not always new. Always more. And you say, like the mantra for curing greed, I have enough. I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. May all be fed. May all things flourish. May all awaken, Bodhisattva. You catch desire, pulling you out into this invisible ether where desire is somehow satisfied. You say, no, 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 no. Bring that back. Sit still. Hmm. For the first time in my life, I feel sufficient, contented, without that new one or that different one. The end of desire is an experience that meditators and cultivators can have when you catch it at the gates of the senses. The eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind is the power one for desire. Pull it back and say, let's see how I do with what I got. And you go, oh, very well, thank you very much. I do very well with what I got. In fact, I really like the flavor of zai. I really like the flavor of contentment with fewness of desires. In fact, being able to let desire go and let somebody else get the good stuff is very liberating. That's the key. It's not that there's anything wrong intrinsically with wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. In fact, if it weren't for that, I wouldn't be here. Thanks to my parents. I came along because of wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. I got a body because of that. But to think that that's the goal of life is always new, always more, always better. That's what kills me. That's what keeps the world and the wheels of the world turning. To be able to say, I can do just fine without that new one. In fact, I thrive on having just enough and my spirit soars. That's news. That's the Buddha's news. Is that there's life after desire. And not only is there life, there's joy in being able to give. In being able to say, no, I, I got good stuff. Then I, it's okay. Right? So, that's important to say. And I wish I'd time myself better. I could have said that 20 minutes ago when I wasn't over time. But that's the secret of desire. Is that it doesn't end. Desire consumes endlessly but there is a liberation on the other side of just enough sufficiency and contentment. So we'll continue that, at that place next week. And what do you bet there won't be anybody in the hall? Right? Like, you're going to talk about desire again. I'm going to go watch a movie. Uh, it's New Year's Eve. No, no. It's, uh, lect next lecture is first New Year's. Is what? Second. Second. Okay. So we'll all have tasted the flavors of desire that come with the holidays and we're going to be burned out, right? Man, that really didn't pay off. Maybe I'll go listen to that lecture again anyway. We'll see if it pays off. Okay. So grab for all the gusto you can get. You only go around once in this life. Budweiser. Right? Profoundly unwise. That is worldly knowledge, not the knowledge of the Buddha. So the prince went out in the woods and discovered, guess what? He did okay without all that stuff.
How liberating. Okay, let's dedicate merit. And um, see how much time we have. Phil, can we knock it down just a little bit? The volume, just a bit. Yeah, thank you. Okay, dedication of merit is there on your yellow or green sheet. Make a wish um, just to let people know uh, Jay Tobias's mom peacefully passed away after years and years of uh, struggling with uh, a body and mind gradually decaying. And Jay has been a filial son for a very, very long time. And mom just passed away this last week. So if anybody has uh, uh, the ability to dedicate merit to someone who's uh, been a faithful supporter of her son's cultivation, that would be Jay's mom. So Mrs. Tobias has gone on to rebirth and I'm sure uh, would appreciate any dedication that we have. certainly sounds nice. Talk about desires for sound. That's a great sound.
Okay, uh, let's see here. We, I promised pictures, and it's 20 after 9. Um, it would take me about five minutes to get set up, and then <coughs> the uh, pictures that I have are <coughs> excuse me, um, probably half an hour's worth. And I know being uh, night after Christmas, probably people have a lot of stuff to do. Um, would it be okay if we do the slideshow next week? Anybody, my pre- you know, am I teasing you? Previews of coming attractions? I hope so. I hope that's enough to get you back. But I have uh, at least one thing for sure is next week I'll have the slides sorted better. Um, I told you I have five cameras worth of photos. I think I have probably a thousand photographs to sort through. And no, no exaggeration. And there are some really, really good ones. Marion has a wonderful photographic eye. Um, I have pictures from Kevin, Kevin Jong, our dentist friend, who gave me photos. And I took a bunch. And uh, I would like to um, let the pictures and the stories come together. So if that's okay, we'll do that next week. And I'll certainly give plenty of time to the, uh, to the photos. Um, now, I also... I also have many stories. to do with um, people who spoke. Um, the parliament is, people know what that's about, it's called the Parliament of World's Religions. It began first in 1893. 1893 in Chicago. In Chicago there was a World's Fair and the uh, World's Fair included various parliaments. That was just the title they came up with. The Parliament of Industry. The Parliament of Commerce. The Parliament of um, Transportation. Over in the corner, kind of not in center stage at all, was the Parliament of Religions. And it was completely uh, serendipity. It was just chance that conditions came together and for the first time religious speakers from Asia came together to talk about their religions themselves. Not scholars talking about the savage Hindu H-I-N-D-O-O uh, not, you know, uh, missionaries coming back to talk about the heathen Chinese and how they had saved souls in far-off Canton. Um, it was instead people like Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda was a Ramakrishna monk. What does that mean? We know them as Vedanta. Right, our friends at Vedanta. Swami 
um, Swami Prabhudananda and Swami Vedananda are friends who are um, Vedanta monks. They are in the same line as Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda was this incredibly powerful, charismatic speaker who came up in his turban and spoke and mesmerized people. No one had heard such a charismatic preacher of humanity uh, since some of the very best uh, Christian preachers. Swami Vivekananda just woke everybody up to the presence of true religion outside of the borders of Christianity. So, very powerful. It was, he was such a charismatic figure that thousands of people came to hear him. This brown-skinned Hindu speaking on his own behalf. Amazing. Well, he turned the parliament around. It was historic. And, of course, there were other people, including D.T. Suzuki. D.T. Suzuki was not invited as a speaker. He was a clerk to a different Buddhist, another Buddhist speaker. D.T. Suzuki, for various reasons, got uh, adopted by Paul Karras and the Karras family, who were large donors for this event, and sent to Columbia University to study. He there became the famous D.T. Suzuki, who wrote about Buddhism, Zen Buddhism in particular, and turned on an entire generation of scholars and readers to this day. D.T. Suzuki's books are the most among the most beloved books on Buddhism. First Encounter, written by D.T. Suzuki. And uh, Marty Verhoeven wrote his doctoral dissertation on Paul Karras, who supported D.T. Suzuki, picked him out as a young Japanese, skinny young Japanese scholar, obscure, sent him to Columbia, created this this world figure. So that's the parliament. Okay, a hundred years later, the Ramakrishna Mission and others in Chicago said, hey, a hundred years ago, Swamiji made a splash. Let's do it again. 1993. And they said, no, too much. How are you going to get, it's not going to happen again. They said, we'll make it happen. So they got the Palmer House Hotel, this old funky hotel on the shores of Lake Michigan, they sent the invitations out. Not much happened early on. There wasn't much return to the point where the Buddhists were so um, the Buddhists were so weak in their response. That three weeks before the Parliament the phone rang in Burlingame at ITI and a voice said, excuse me, uh, would Master Shrenhua like to come to Chicago to represent Buddhism because we don't have many Buddhists? Well, in our lack of wisdom, we said, hmm, to wait three weeks before to ask Shrenhua to come to the parliament, you obviously don't respect him, don't care much about him. You know? Well, that was the wrong thing to say. Shrenhua called and said, who called? Hey, Shrivu, the Parliament of World's Religion in Chicago called, and they, you know, Shrivu, you're busy. You're going to be in L.A. Oh, do we need to change? Should we go? I don't think so, Shrivu. It's probably, you know, too little, too late. We sh- well, in hindsight, we definitely sort of sent Shrivu, and he was depending on us, and we dropped the ball. That would have been the thing to do. In fact, nobody made plans at that point. Well, the 1993 Parliament turned out to be hugely significant. 
really important. Hans Kung wrote, you know, towards a global ethic, and it was really, really powerful moment, including the Sikhs and the Hindus having a fist fight on the stage that was moderated and they kept peace by the Dalai Lama who broke up the fist fight among the Sikhs and the Hindus. That was the time when Kashmir was really hot. Another story. <coughs> so, it was a big deal. They expected 3,000 people, 7,000 people showed up. Right? This is 1993. So they said, hey, we got to do it again. Another part of the group said, no way. We're thousands of dollars you know, in the, in the red, how can we do it again? So they said, we got to do it again. So five years later, Cape Town, South Africa, Parliament number three happened. Five years later, Barcelona, Spain, Parliament number four happened. Five years later, Melbourne, Australia, Parliament number five. So that was the event. Um, still has lots of energy. And um, this time, the important thing was the indigenous people, the, um, the peoples of Australia, the Aboriginal peoples, the first peoples of Australia are, some people would say, the oldest continuous civilization still on the planet. They trace their ancestors back 60,000 years. They, they have the stories, the songs, the song lines of the Aboriginals are timeless, they say. As long as there have been humanity, those, those people have been there. Africa would contend, but those populations don't, don't have the culture to trace back. They have memories, they don't have the straight line cultures. So for the very first time, the aboriginals of Australia were put on stage, were invited to come and share their wisdom, along with native peoples of North America, native peoples of South America, native peoples of Japan. So this was indigenous parliament. And one of the, uh, I'm not going to go on, where time is up, but I just want to share some of the things. The, um, some of the most powerful things that were said came from the Native Americans. Of them, the most powerful spokespersons were two, Chief Jake Swamp of the Mohawk Nation and Chief Oren Lyons, the faith keeper of the Iroquois, who's an Onondaga. And they are Joanne Shenandoah's Shurfu. Oren Lyons is the faith keeper of the Iroquois, and Joanne and Doug were here three weeks before the parliament on their way to Melbourne. Joanne and Doug, those of you who are here will remember, Joanne began with this, the statement of thanksgiving, the thanksgiving blessing of the Iroquois. That's what Chief Jake Swamp recited in Mohawk and then translated it in Melbourne. Um, Joanne's mom passed away on Thanksgiving. She wasn't able to go. She and Doug were featured at the parliament, but they didn't go because Maisie Shenandoah passed on, went to the spirit world, the way they say so Chief Oren Lyons and Chief Jake Swamp spoke on behalf of native peoples. And you know what they talked about? They talked about, um, we don't have much time left. They, from their perspective, it's broken. Um, Jake said that the pine tree, the, the maple, the maple tree is nature's barometer. And the maples 
the crests and the crowns of the maples were starting to dry. And they didn't give syrup. They didn't give maple sap. Uh, which if you live in New England, you know what that means. So they are not optimistic. Um, they say that we've ignored the... Um, We've ignored the messages of nature too long now, and they're broken. It's broken, and we've been hearing those messages, and we didn't do anything. Uh, that's nature. Uh, Oren said, "You know what's really sad now is tigers. Tigers are disappearing. We know how many tigers there are. Why? Well, because there's so few left, we can actually count them." He said, "They won't last. They're going." We know how many wolves there are. People are shooting them out of airplanes, out of helicopters. They won't last long. And he's the wolf clan. He says, we know how many there are because there aren't many left. He said, well, we're all related. What's, who cares about tigers and wolves? Well, he said, we should. Because why? Once they go, we're next. We're just a species too. How many of us are there? We know. We're next. When they're gone, we're the next ones to go. And it's kind of plain talk like that that just, if you hear it, it chills you. Because these are people who are tuned in and the prophecies are there. But it's not all negative. He said, the, uh, this is what Jake talked about. Jake talks about the peacemaker. We've had jo- heard Joanne Shenandoah talk about the peacemaker and sing about peacemaker's journey. And he lifts up the white tree of peace and underneath the white tree of peace they bury the weapons that's what the peacemaker does and the six tribes of the Iroquois that were killing each other bloodthirsty all made peace they put the weapons underneath the tree of peace and in the prophecy there are evil people who come to chop down the tree of peace the tree of peace they chop its roots and it starts to fall and in the, prophet, the prophetic, in the prophecy story, children, children come out and all together hold up the tree of peace and set it back up. Children do this in the story. And because its roots have been cut, it doesn't live long. But the last part of the story before it's all ended and the great winnowing happens is the children hold up the tree of peace for the last short time. So how powerful is that? And the other thing about the parliament that was wonderful was the youth track was very together largely because of Sarah Talcott and the United Religions Initiative. The URI's energy and especially the youth, global youth community from the URI with Sarah leading was very much present very powerful and Sarah made a promise that she was going to lead she was full of tears on this last day when the indigenous made their statement she uh, promised that she was going to lead the young people towards that goal towards holding up the tree of peace so that was very positive Um, I have with me a copy of the indigenous statement that was made from the gathering of the uh, 
Australian First Peoples, the Aboriginals, and the Native American. It's called Indigenous People's Statement to the World, delivered at the Parliament of the World's Religions, convened at Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, December 9th. And so here it is. And, um, I will share the highlights of that with you next week, so please do come and listen, because this is special stuff. Uh, it may be too late, but with the knowledge is never too late. Among the knowledge circulated at the Parliament this time was knowledge of the doctrine of Christian discovery, which I'll tell you more about next week. Uh, there was a papal edict, a bull, they called it, released in the 14th century that said any lands that a Christian reaches where the people do not believe in Christ is a land without an owner because they are heathens and it's available for taking by Christians. Called the doctrine of Christian discovery. It's been law for 500, 600 years and still being invoked. This is documented now. That's been behind a lot of the imperialism uh, of Christian Europe over the rest of the world. And it's still in power, still in force. So these scholars who discovered this and are writing, have written books about it now are saying, time to pull that one back. Time for the Vatican to say, that's not law. That if you don't agree with us religiously, you don't exist and it's your land is ours. That has been law for 500 years. It's called the Doctrine of Christian Discovery and that was highlighted at the Parliament. So how interesting. That is now a big spotlight on that one saying mm, time for us to, to look again at that one. So more next week. I'm sorry and I'll have pictures and, and songs. I have a brand new song based on the Sharangama Sutra's 25 Sages. Sundar Ananda's Breathing. We have a new song. Breathing in, breathing out, Outside in, inside out, Buddha mind full of light. Watch your breath fill with light. So that's uh, we'll talk about that next week and teach it to everybody. Let's bow to the Buddhas and Merry Christmas is over. Happy holidays and New Year. We'll see you on January second.